Lord, as we come to open Your Word this morning, we ask that You'd open our hearts and our ears to hear through Your Holy Spirit that You would uh, cause us to receive from You this morning, that we'd be stronger in our walk with You, stronger in our love for You. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I have one other announcement to share with you, and... uh, I forgot to write it down, but the Potosties are celebrating uh, their baby, Anna, and uh, she was born the end of this last week, and she's uh, nine pounds, six ounces. So just keeping them in prayer, everybody stays. Six pounds, nine ounces? Okay. (laughs) Either way, she's here. That's what happens with your vision when it goes the wrong way. Well, anyway. So, congratulations to the Toasties. We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're looking at the Beatitudes. I will be sharing with you just uh, from verses 2, 3, 4, probably this morning. Um... But I wanted to, to set a kind of a reset the stage. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that the important, what I feel is extremely important in reference to the Beatitudes. First off, it's probably, uh, oh, Karsh and others uh, comment that, that it's probably the most well known passage of, of, of volume of Scripture, not necessarily one individual Scripture, but volume of Scripture, even outside of the church. It gets quoted uh, over and over and over again. I mentioned. You think of all the, the movies where uh, you, you've heard the, the phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, and, uh, this type of thing. And uh, it's, so it's something that's talked about a lot. And I know that when I was in uh, uh, school, not Bible college, but in secular college, in a uh, religion course, uh, comparative religion course, the Beatitudes was mentioned and talked about briefly as... Uh, mentioning Jesus as a good teacher and uh, these moral standards of the Beatitudes and how uh, if we all lived this way, how things would be. And even more so, combining it with uh, Matthew chapter 25 about taking care, you know, greeting the, the hungry, the poor, the, the needy, the, those in prison, etc. And it developed in the, the 50s and 60s actually developed into what was termed the social gospel. The idea that this is, if, if this is what we do if we're, we're from the church, we're going to go out and we're going to uh, help people and, 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 and they lost the emphasis on who Jesus was, is in the mix. We're, we're Christians. We love Jesus. We love His teachings, the good teacher. I think I've shared with you uh, more than once, but it's always... Uh, amazed me that that you could be a pastor in a pulpit in a church in a, that's got a history, a denominational history that goes back even into the first great awakening and uh, very you know on fire for the Lord at the time and, and have him say that he believes that the teachings of Jesus were resurrected but not a bodily resurrection. And when he looks at the Bible and he would look at something like the uh, Sermon on the Mount in he would say, oh, it's, again, a bunch of very good moral teachings and a way to live your life. And yet he doesn't believe 
in the literalness of the, the God-breathed Scripture. And I've, Kathy and I over the years have met more than one pastor who feel that way. Uh, it's, it's it's always surprising. What do you get into the you know kind of what are you going to talk about in the pulpit if you if you don't start with God breathed, and and so uh, the reality of accepting Jesus as a good teacher and a good moral teacher uh, is a, is a a mistake. It's wrong. It's a fallacy. You can't do that quite candidly. If Jesus isn't the Savior first, he's never going to transform anybody who in the sense of the Beatitudes. They might get a few good ideas and it might change a few of their social behaviors in some ways, in some cases, but it's not going to be the transformation. It's not going to be the, the, the thing that Jesus was looking for here in the sense of transforming and changing hearts. Without Christ as a Savior, He's not going to be the good teacher other than just the philosophical way of looking at it. He's not going to change lives because it's Jesus as a Savior first that comes into this picture the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation that, that opens your eyes to Scripture for, being, for the transformation uh, that it's intended. And at that point, the Beatitudes become extremely important to us. The Sermon on the Mount becomes extremely important to us because it becomes that, that, that picture of, of, of what Jesus put together. It's even referred to as the Christian Manifesto. Uh, I can recall Francis Schaeffer uh, not only writing his own Christian manifesto in the sense of a book to, to guide the church, but referring to the Sermon on the Mount as the Christian manifesto. You want to know what a Christian is? You want to know what a Christian believes? Go to the Sermon on the Mount and you'll get the basics. And so we start with Jesus the good teacher? No, we start with Jesus the Savior. Then we look at him. Was he a great teacher? He was, he's the teacher. The Sermon on the Mount's not going to work until the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, is working first. Oswald Chambers, uh, he made the statement, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we believers will have when the Holy Spirit is having His way with us. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us, the Sermon on the Mount is, is the guide. I think of, of putting into this, how will they know we are Christians? And Jesus said they will, you, the, the world will know you are Christians by the love you have for each other. And that can't be pulled apart from the other idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea of, of the Christ-like love, having His ears, having His eyes, having His way of looking at things, the Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start. And it starts with the idea of, of, of blessed... Well, uh, let's start with verse 2. And He opened His mouth and taught them saying... Now, I, I spent some time with that uh, uh, two weeks ago. It, it sounds like a, a kind of a, a, a strange thing to say. He opened his mouth and, see, and he began to teach. He taught them. Of course he opened his mouth to teach them. Uh, but the idea is that he has, this is a, a colloquialism that leans itself towards the idea that he had, in, it's something important for him to say. 
It's more than it's kind of like a heralding of the idea. Listen to this. He opened his mouth to say this. It's important. And so he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we get this, this picture of, of what it is to be blessed by God. And even starting with the idea of, of what it is to be blessed, um, we, we, this, the reading this morning uh, said, Blessed is, is, is the man who takes refuge in God, that takes refuge in Him. That's Blessed, what does it mean? Well, it's more than just happy. Uh, there's nothing wrong with idea of, of, of happy, but more in the sense of, of, of a sense of joy and, and peace is included in this idea of, of resting in God and resting in His refuge, resting in His cupboard. And it starts with the idea of being poor in spirit. Uh, poverty of spirit. Uh, you know, uh, being poor, the word that's used here could be uh, idea of poverty of spirit. Lowly in spirit. Uh, and... Really, what we look at is that this is, and I'm not going to go into the ways that other people have interpreted as much as just to, to look at what I believe it's saying, and that is, is that blessed is the man who becomes spiritually aware, aware of his spiritual bankruptcy. He is poor in spirit. He is in poverty. Why? Because there isn't anything that he has that can, that can open up the kingdom of heaven for him. There isn't a thing that you can bring. You are absolutely bankrupt and broke when it comes to getting into the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing for you to bring that will open the door. You have, you can't buy a key. You can't. Do you know how interesting it is to me? I, I, I well, you don't because I haven't told you. Um, but maybe to you as well. Uh, there was, you know, the, the criminal the, and, and, and gangster Al Capone. I don't know how many of you are familiar with his history and stuff, but almost everybody knows who he was. Gangster of the 20s and 30s. You know, murder was no problem for him uh, doing it himself or having it done and rose to, to great power and, 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 and extreme wealth and, and depraved mind. And... Uh, he gave money on a regular basis to the Catholic Church. And he actually believed that in some way he was, as he gave this, this money to the Catholic Church, he was undoing the kind of that idea of buying God's forgiveness. If you give enough money, you get some grace. And 
being Catholic, uh, the, the intent of, of the idea was is he, he somehow has purgatory sewed up because he gave money to the church, so he'll eventually make heaven, no matter how evil or bad he was. You know, he was trying to buy the keys to the kingdom. And I think he actually believed he could do it. I really think he thought he could do it. And he's not the only gangster in, in, in that era that was giving money to, to, to the church to, to, to try to somehow balance their evil. There isn't anything that you can do. You can't, you can't build a wing on a hospital and get, a, and get an edge on the keys to the kingdom. I think of the number of, of, of extremely wealthy men that came out of the, uh, the, the, the Industrial Revolution and the railroad era and, and stuff. All the, the universities and hospitals and, and, and organizations that they helped form that are charitable and do good things. Uh, without Jesus Christ as the Savior, they, didn't, they, they accomplished a monument to their, and a legacy to their name here on earth but they accomplished nothing in the sense of the kingdom of God. I don't know how else to drive this home, how important it is. This is where you have to start. You must come to a point where you are poor in spirit. You have nothing to bring to the throne of God except your bankrupt heart. You recognize that your sin is sin. You rest in its, in its evil um, you rest in its results. Without Christ, you are the wages of sin own you. you the wages of sin is death. Uh, I think of the the song that uh, for me was a, a Tennessee Ernie Ford song, but it wasn't. You know, uh, I owe my stole my soul to the company store. Uh, you, and he was talking about being a miner and loading the coal and stuff like that. And you lived in a, a mill town and in, in, in the in the in the factory town, not the mill town, that was TL. Um, and you had the factory store and, and you went in and you got tokens for your wages that you had to spend at the factory store. And you owed, you never got out of debt with them, apparently, you know, as the way it worked. And so he, he writes, I owed my soul to the company store. Well, the company store of, of, of sin is death and we owe our soul to it. Uh, without Jesus Christ as Savior. So we start there. Poor in spirit. At the point in time that you receive the reality, the truth, you are broken, poor in spirit. That is a point that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to your salvation. And it's an, it's an amazing thing. You realize what sin is, how broken you are, and how much you need a Savior. It's what brings us to our knees, figuratively or literally, and brings us to that point where we confess with our mouth because we now believe in our heart Jesus Christ is the only way into heaven. And so the, you're blessed as you're poor in spirit because you finally come to the reality. You can't save yourself. And as you rest in the grace of Christ, the kingdom of heaven becomes yours. Do 
you just how amazing. We could stop there and go home as far as in one, in one sense. That is the, the essence of, of, of our faith right there. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He alone brings us into a relationship that saves us, puts us at peace with God, settles the price of sin, and allows us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I was in, in one commentary, they did a great deal of comparison of the story of the prodigal son uh, and, and how he comes to that point at the very depth of, uh, he's wasted his inheritance, he's, he's, he's got no rights left, he's a Jewish man feeding and living with pigs. If you understand anything about the Jewish culture, that's the bottom of the rung. There is nothing lower you could be doing. He's even fighting the pigs for food uh, is the implication of the way it's put together there. Uh, he's either eating the, the stuff before it gets to them or he literally is fighting with them for it. But the idea is that he's, he's gone as low as he possibly can and he comes to that point where he, he realizes I, I, I could be, if it weren't for the way I am, I deserve nothing, but I want to go back and see if I could at least be the slave to my dad. And, and, he, and it opens the door to his thinking that he would be better off as, as, the, as the lowest man on the totem pole in his dad's world than he was where he was now. And he goes home, and his dad just receives him. There's so much more to go with that. But I'm just saying, and, and, you know, at, at, at a point, he, he opens his eyes and he realizes that, that uh, I, need my, I, I, I need to be where my father is in letting him cover me. So the basic point that I guess I'm looking at here is, is that without Christ as your Savior, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes that we just read, are they don't have much value other than that they look like a real nice moral standard. But you'll never be able to put them into application. You'll never have a really true impact on you until you embrace the first one and you are really poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And the idea of this mourning is not the idea of, of, of mourning in the sense of, of, of uh, we normally think of grief and suffering because we have a loss. Of, you can you mourn over the loss of, of, of a family member or a friend. Uh, you mourn over the you, can, you find that sometimes people mourn over the loss of a job, a career, this type of thing. But this mourning is directed back to those who are poor in spirit. Once you are poor in spirit, once you see the darkness of sin, and 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 you realize the sin 
not only in yourself, but you realize the, the, the sin of a fallen world. Uh, over the years, I have been... I still cannot really comprehend man's collective, especially when it gets into like an ethnic cleansing type of thing, man's inhumanity to man. I don't understand how that can, how a, a culture or a group of people can become to a point where to, to murder children, you know, to murder uh, women, to, to, uh, to, to just the, 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 the sickness of, of trying to eliminate a complete ethnic group is 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 beyond me, but it's happened so often in this fallen world that it's a it's a it's a part of it. And as we look around, we realize how ugly, how deep, how dark sin is. And we realize again in our bankruptcy of our own, we are equal. We're we're in that darkness. We're 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 just as dark. And when Christ comes in, the light of salvation comes in, the light of the world comes in and opens our hearts, we begin to mourn, first off, in the fact that we have failed God in our own sin. And we mourn over our own sin. The sense of, of, of realizing how, how it's grieved God we continue to mourn over our sins as we as we deal with it as uh, as as believers, and realizing that as long as we live in this this flesh uh, inherited from Adam, that we will be yielding to that the nature of this flesh and battling with it over spiritual things. And when we fail, the Holy Spirit brings it to mind and we realize what it is that we have done. We confess. But in a sense, there's a sadness, a mourning over our sin, even as believers, and mourning over our sin of the past as well, how it has hurt people. Uh, I found it necessary after I became a Christian, and uh, I, I know a lot of people aren't really particularly fond of Bill Gothard, uh, possibly because a lot of his ministry, I think, went further than he ever intended it to go in the sense of too many things. But uh, his basic youth conflicts that I went to as a new believer really helped me understand what my sins were and the fact that there were people I needed to go back and say I was sorry. Now, it's interesting. Some of the people that you go back to and you say that, they're looking at you like you're crazy. Like, oh, well, you know, sorry for what? Um, I remember we were to sit down and make a list of people that uh, we needed to go pray that God opened our minds to a list of people that we needed to say we're sorry to. I had a, uh, an acquaintance uh, who on his list was a guy that he had not paid back money since he was in college and he was in his 30s. And... Uh, he did everything he could to find this guy. Couldn't find him. Figured, oh, well, I'm safe. You know, meaning I've done all I can do. Must have, I, I believe at this point where I see God's hand in this because he's in Colorado in a blizzard whiteout. Has to pull over into a cafe. And who's in there? His friend. And now he's, he, he has to 
to, he knows he has to deal with it. And that was at that point where, no, 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 this isn't the right place. It isn't. Uh, was, you know, and he actually, and his friend said, what? You're, you're upset about, everybody did that. You know, they borrowed money, forget to pay it. No big deal. You know? But it was something he had to take care of. And as a result, he also got to share his testimony with his friend as to why he was doing it. So who knows what came of all of that. But the idea is that you mourn, you, you regret, you, 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 you want to reconcile as much as you can where you have blown it. And, and again, good morning in a, in a general capacity for the world. You know, Jesus showed us that morning as he, as, as he wept over Israel. Several places that you can go to in Scripture to see it. Uh, I'm just thinking of, of, of the reality of, of just coming to that point where you know who you are, you're poor in spirit, and you realize your sin and how, and how it's got, what it is, and, and you, you, you realize it. And I think of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he comes before the throne of God and he says, oh my gosh, I'm a man undone. <laughs> I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, I, I'm the, it's, it's over. He saw the glory of God, the light of God, and saw himself as a, a man of a fallen world. And he realized how bankrupt he was. We're poor in spirit, but as we come to that point and we realize it, we 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 thank God for what He's done. He opens the kingdom of heaven. We become citizens of heaven. And as we mourn, He tells us that we will have the peace of God. The reason for that is, is that we're seeing sin through God's eyes. We wouldn't be there if we hadn't gotten to poor in spirit first. We wouldn't be at this point or we see sin in God's eyes and we realize that what it cost God, and we, in a sense, include that in our mourning, that God would have to go to the cross to open the kingdom of heaven for me, but that he did. And as I rest in that truth, the peace of God becomes mine because I am at peace with God. There's no longer a barrier it has been removed through the blood of Christ. There is no greater comfort than to be at peace with God. I didn't realize that until it happened. Have you ever made the statement uh, in your or thought the thought in your mind? How does how do people survive this and this and this type of situation without the Lord? Has it ever crossed your mind, whether it's the, the loss of a loved one or, or, or just grief or health issues and different things? And you say, how do people survive without, without the help of the Lord? And yet, before I was a Christian, I didn't know I needed that help. We, Kathy and I had survived a, a few griefs together before we were ever Christians. And... and, and uh, you know, it, we didn't. I, I realized I didn't. I didn't uh, survive them in a Christian context or with you know a Christian attitude, and I uh, certainly didn't look at things through the eyes of Christ. But 
we got we got through them. And it never occurred for me to put it this way until I had to explain something to my youngest son. And and it, the reality just really hit me. I never knew I needed Christ until He opened my eyes. I saw my sin that I was poor in spirit. Now I wouldn't know what to do without Him. I didn't need Him before. I had no need for Jesus in my life. You've heard my testimony. I told my wife, our friends that have become Christians come over with their Bibles, I'll go down to the Wheelark, play pool for a while, bar. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to hear about it. I had no need. And when it was opened up to me, it's like I said, now I don't know what I could, I don't know how I would have survived all that we've been through without it. And I realize now also that in my rebellion, Christ was even there. In the midst of my foolishness, Christ was even there. In the midst of of life-threatening situations, Christ was even there. Already taking care of me. And when you come to that, you come to this humble attitude. Meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are not the weak. The meek are not those without a backbone. Jesus is considered to be one who was meek. And yet, as he endured the cross, we see his absolute power and his ability to take on the cross and all that it had with the ability at his choice to walk away. He was in charge. Nobody else was. The Roman soldiers weren't. The, 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 the Jewish Sanhedrin wasn't. Jesus was in charge. It says he could have called legions of angels down at any point. And we see that's not the sign of a person who's weak or or without backbone. It was a sign of a powerful Savior. Meekness. Hum, humility. I'm going to put it as simply as I can. You've heard this before. I'm third. person who is poor in spirit, who mourns over sin, realizes, and he comes to this point where we really truly begin to see the world through God's eyes, hear it through his ears, and actually desire to become his hands to, to assist in the world, of bringing his light into the world. And what happens is we take on the I'm third attitude. God is first. The other man is second. And I'm third. I'm willing to give up my rights, sacrifice my resources for the sake of the need of another man. If you give to this church, you are sacrificing and taking an I'm third position. As you support missions, as you support our ministries. You're, what are we here for? To, to, the idea of to, 
to transform our community and the world. We're taking an attitude. We're willing to put our resources towards someone else. We're willing to give. That attitude needs to become the predominant attitude in our relationship. I tell people, and I do when I do marriage counseling in the in the sense of premarital wedding counseling, that I'm third attitude. I get into it. I talk about it because it is what makes a marriage strong to me. Is that God is first, my wife is second, and I come into the I'm third. Her rights supersede my rights. The reality is that God wants her to have the same attitude. And as a result, we're always coming at each other wanting to give and not trying to take. Tell you what, it makes for a great marriage. 45 years so far. I'm third attitude. And I don't want you to miss this, this picture. A lot of it, I, I didn't see as much of it as I would have liked to as I was reading through different uh, commentaries. And this idea of meekness and humble is the idea of submission to God. Not just the attitude of you know putting others ahead of yourself, but it's submission to God in the sense of trust and obedience. That you know, the, this meekness is God is first in all things. I do really trust Him more than myself on the things that need to happen in my life. Can I rest in the reality that God is never late? God is never wrong? That He works all things together to bring about His purpose for our good? All things? To submit and to trust and to obey. He says the meek will inherit the earth. But, and I think this is builds. As you become poor in spirit, you become a citizen of the, heaven, uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven and you mourn over sin. You see the world the way God sees it and your desire is to see God's work done in the world to the point where you are willing to give of yourself to see that accomplished and you take that attitude, you will inherit the earth. That's part of the inheritance that has been promised through Jesus Christ. There is a new heaven and a new earth, and I do believe that's what it's referring to. We will be a part of that. Period. Because of what Christ has done, and we rest in Him. Just quickly, what that will tie to this is the, the, the next blessed person in the sense is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll take this on more in depth next message but but the idea that your heart changes as to what you pursue. The only time I took to read the Bible before I was a Christian was assigned readings and things that you had to do for, for secular purposes in a secular class. Uh, wisdom lit I had to read the Psalms and Job and uh, other things and uh, the comparative religions. And I mean that I read parts of, of the other religious books in, you know, as well. And uh, when I was challenged to read the Gospel of John, 
I, I had a Bible at home, but it was the family Bible. <laughs> Big, huge thing with, with pages that were ready to fall out. And I, I, it was an heirloom is the way I looked at that. I didn't ever look at it. I never opened it other than to the, the marriage and death and birthday parts. And, uh, and by the way, I meant that as the pages for our family's marriage, death, and birthdays. Uh, and uh, I went out and bought a New Testament and read the Gospel of John that afternoon. Luke, Mark, and Matthew. I still remember coming home and Kathy said, what did you do this afternoon? I said, I read the Gospel. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, it was it was different, and for whatever reason, it didn't happen overnight. A year and a half before the Lord became clear in my heart that who He was and, and what I needed to do, but it doesn't change the reality that He was working on me. He was opening my eyes. I was becoming poor in spirit, and uh, so poor in spirit, mourning over our sins. Uh, we take on the attitude of I'm third, God first, the other man second. And the reality is, is that it gives us, if this isn't there, then there, you, you, I think there's valid concern as to where your walk is with the Lord. Is there a hunger and a thirst for His righteousness? And I'm not talking about good deeds. I'm talking about His Word and His glory and, his, and, and, and knowing who He is. To know His righteousness. To know His love. And, I, and, and to realize that it's going to take a lifetime and then an eternity to know it and to grow in it. I believe with all my heart that we will spend, you know, I know some people say, well, we'll see him face to face and we'll know all things. That's not, I do not believe that's what it's talking about in the sense that we'll know God's, the eternal God completely. I believe we're going to be discovering for eternity. So here we are, poor in spirit. I don't deserve Christ. I, there's nothing I can do to come into the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing I can give or earn anyway. As a result, I mourn over my sin. And as I mourn over my sin and I begin to, to see God's grace and I rest in it, the more I rest in it, the more at peace I am with Him the more I want to see His righteousness prevail. And the reality is, is that I begin to put Him ahead of everything and others ahead of myself with the idea that I want to, to be able to bless people with God somehow and, and, and with Christ's love somehow. And finally, that gives me the hunger the thirst and the thirst to, to seek after Him. And I am absolutely confident anyone who wants to seek after God, He will make Himself available. He will reveal Himself. Period. And like I said, we'll get into that next message. So, I look at this and I realize within the framework of all of this, these are also traits that you see in Christ in, in, a, in a unique way as well. Jesus Christ humbled Himself. He took the I'm third position. God, not your, my will, but your will be done for the sake of the church is implied. 
In other words, as I go to the cross, I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, 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 Jesus, you know, Jesus is saying, I look at this, and I'm saying, you know, all that's going to happen there, I would rather not have to experience that. <laughs> but I know that that's the only way it is accomplished. God, you first, the plan first. I submit for the sake of those who will be saved. And we see that here's a man who was, you know, became poor in spirit for us, humbled himself for us. The king of the universe, everything created through him, by him, sustained for in him is is there and 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 he's he mourns for us. And he becomes meek for us and becomes humble for us. And I thought, how did the righteousness and hunger and thirst he said, Well he, he hungers and thirsts always after the things that the God has revealed to him, that his father had revealed to him. So maybe part of that but I really looked at it as the reality is that he became righteousness for us, opening the door. He became sin for us as a result. He is, and it's a scriptural point, he is our righteousness. Every time we come to communion, it's a time and opportunity to recognize who you are as a sinner, who you are as a child of God, the grace that God has poured out on us, to submit to him again and say, Lord, you are first in all things. And to add to add to it this idea, Lord, cause me to be a humble servant of yours. Where I have sinned, forgive me. And that's a, the idea of mourning over your sin and at that point realizing that he has absolutely promised if we confess, he forgives. And to walk away with the absolute confidence that a new heaven and a new earth is yet ahead of us. And he said, we're to share this meal, communion, until he comes again and ushers us into that. It's an amazing thing we do every Sunday, isn't it? We celebrate who God is, what Christ has done, and the love of Christ. Asking that his love would overwhelm us and that we would have his eyes, his ears, his heart, and be his hands in the world today. Ask the ushers to come for, uh, to pass the communion out. Hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share it together.
This morning for the scripture reading, the angels camp around those who who fear him and 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 rest in him. In other words, and and he delivers them. You know, what a powerful picture! The God of mercy and the God of grace, the God who loves us so much that he would come literally in the flesh, humble himself, come in the flesh of a man to be broken for us. So that we could know salvation. And he asked at the Last Supper, he had taken the bread and given thanks and he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, I want you to remember this is my body. He said, it's been broken for you. He asked us to do it in remembrance of him as often as we would share it. And then he took the cup of wine at the end of the meal and he, he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. And what he's literally saying is this is my life that is being poured out for you. 
to the end in order to purchase the covenant of grace. And he asks that until he returns that we would do this in remembrance of him. Father, again, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love, for opening our hearts, for saving us. Lord, it's, just, uh, it's awesome to rest in your grace and, and, and to be at peace with, with, in the sense of, of our sin, knowing that it's covered. The literal words, it is finished, mean exactly what they say. It is finished. It is done. Your bodily resurrection is the proof that, that, that it is done and that we have that to look forward to. We thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you are doing, and all that is yet to come our way. Cause us to really walk in that I'm third attitude that comes from being poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, and accepting that reality of who you are and through you alone is our grace, and humbling ourselves in your sight, and taking that I'm third attitude that you took for our sake. Thank you, Lord. Jesus' name. Amen.